you happen to have uh, brought a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to the book of Acts? And while you're working your way there, I'm going to go over a little detail with you. Um, Acts 26 and Acts 25 specifically. If you didn't bring one, you're going to find them in the racks right there around you. Really important that you have a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own one, we have free Bibles in the back. I'd love for you to pick one up on your way out this morning. And uh, you'll find it right back there in the back table by that sign-up sheet. Um, Earlier in the service, you heard Michael mention um, that we have a discovery class coming up on February 27th. And I want to bring that back to your attention this morning for a specific reason. In our Constitution here at New Hope, we have two things that the congregation can vote on. And one is um, the replacement of a senior pastor. And I'm not going to any place, okay? So just, you won't be able to exercise that one. But the second one really it relates to why we're um, especially emphasizing the discovery class right now. The, the other privilege is to vote on things dealing with the business of the church related to real estate, purchasing and selling real estate. And in the last couple months, you know, we've been talking about this piece of property that the church potentially could expand to over on M78 by where the new Myers was built, just a little bit down from the road from there. With this coming Wednesday on the 10th, and I'd love for you to be praying about this in advance, we're having final discussions with the individuals who are the sellers of that property. And if everything goes well with the discussions, uh, we would like to bring back to you as the congregation of New Hope the, the right to vote on whether or not you agree with the church moving forward with that purchase of that property. And so in order for the vote to take place, we would love for as many people to be as members as possible. We're going to allow the entire church to vote, uh, both regular tenders and members, but for legal binding reasons, membership vote counts when we file the paperwork and and the things that we process forward with. So really encouraging you, if you've ever thought about going through the membership classroom, maybe you're new here and you wondered, how do I get plugged in? February 27th is your day, and we recognize it might be a really largely attended class. It may even have to take place in the auditorium, but I really want to encourage you to consider that. And in the meantime, be praying about what the church is in discussion on in regards to this property and the expansion, okay? I'd love to pray with you right now before we step into the text, so I I want to invite you to bow your heads with me and let's go before the throne. Lord God, we come before you recognizing that we have brought ourselves here willingly because we want to encounter you. And we've expressed to you our confidence in who we are in you by participating in communion and willingly singing loudly. Father, we would love for you to combine that willingness of our heart and the witness that we have with the presence of the Holy Spirit who is in this place and give us an encounter with you. So God, we invite you to cause your word to be alive in ways that perhaps we've never even personally seen. You've said that your word is not dead. You've said your word is alive. And you said your word is not stagnant, but rather it's active. And you said your word is not dull, but you said your word is sharp. So because your word is alive and because it's active and because it's sharp, we ask that you would cause it to do things that you would work on us. We pray for that encounter, that desire to meet you, to merge with your word this morning. Help us to see what you are trying to relate to us specifically. God, I ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 
So we're going to get a little bit of a pre-Easter celebration this morning because we're going to be talking about resurrection as we work through Acts 25. It might surprise you, we're going to be moving our way into Acts 26 this morning. So I'm going to move very quickly. And so what you're going to see when you see passages go up on the screen is I pulled out excerpts from 25 and 26 rather than the full verses. So don't freak out when you see that your Bible might read a little differently than what's up on the screen because I've tried to pull out some things that I really wanted to emphasize with you. But before jumping into Acts 25, I, I want to go to an anchor verse first. Look with me up on the screen at this verse, 1 Corinthians 1.18. And it says this, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You got anybody in your life who thinks that you're a fool for believing in Jesus Christ? I know a number of us do. A number of individuals in society at large would say those Christians are totally out there. And they're whacked out. I can't believe they believe that stuff. Well, the Scripture promises you, you should be encouraged to expect that because God says to those who don't believe it, it's, it's foolishness because they're living with blinders on. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. God says specifically, those who can't see the cross are that way because they're living in blindness. I'll come back to that thought in just a few minutes. Let me catch you up to speed, especially if you haven't been here in, in the last few weeks of where we're at. Paul is a prisoner of Rome. He's been held in chains for two years. There was a governor who was in power, and his name was Felix, and Paul stood trial before Felix. Felix failed to come to a decision about what to do with Paul, so instead of rendering a verdict on Paul, he locked him up because he didn't know what to do. Now, Felix, as we discovered a couple weeks ago, was this really, really brutal guy, and he put down, he, he suppressed rebellion with the utmost force, killing lots of people. Well, one particular riot that he suppressed was uh, responsible for killing so many people that the leaders of Judea sent a party up to see Caesar in Rome to protest against Felix's rule. And Caesar Nero, who was in power, decided to recall Felix and replace him. And he brought him back to Rome in disgrace, and he put in place Festus. That's who you're going to see in verse 1 of chapter 25 this morning. Porcius Festus is a member of Roman nobility. He's been raised in the palace. We don't know a lot about him other than that he served for two years, and then he died. But Josephus, an ancient historian, describes him as better than his predecessor, meaning he was better than Felix because Felix was such a brutal guy. Let's go forward into verse 1 of Acts 25, and it says this, Festus, then having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now Felix, the previous governor, was so brutal and so cruel, it caused all kinds of hostility in the land. And that suspicion and that hostility is now directed towards Festus because he's the new guy in town. And what this previous ruler had done was so egregious it caused all kinds of political problems now festus inherits all of that everything that his incompetent predecessor had left behind but unlike felix festus is not a procrastinator he deals with things very very swiftly and he wants to be informed of why is this paul guy still in prison why is he locked up inside my palace so we go to verse 2 he makes his way up to Jerusalem and it says, And the chief priest brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, verse 3, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem. We go on to the end of the verse, and we find out at the same time they were setting an ambush against Paul. They wanted to kill him. In case he was released from prison, they're hoping to kill him on the highway. 
Now, if you know anything about the first century, especially in Rome, maintaining peace under the Roman Empire was their highest priority. Especially in the Middle East, they really wanted to establish peace in the Middle East. Good luck with that, right? We're trying to do that 2,000 years later. They couldn't do it then, and we can't do it any better now. Well, that was a really high priority for this governor because there's this constant threat of rebellion, all kinds of little fires smoldering around. Now, no sooner does Festus arrive in Jerusalem than the important dignitaries of the city, these really influential people, come up to him and begin pressuring him about, about Paul. So Festus is facing very difficult challenges because these Jewish leaders have been really clever in the past with the governors. They blackmailed Pilate, who was a governor, into crucifying Jesus. They manipulated the previous governor into locking Paul up. And he knows that they're very clever individuals. Now, the request seems innocent. Hey, why don't you just bring Paul up here to Jerusalem? We'll put him on trial up here. But Dr. Luke notes for us in verse 3 that they had set an ambush to kill Paul. So Festus is not so easily deceived. He's got no reason to transport the prisoner. He says, Caesarea is the Roman capital of this area. We're going to act like we're Romans, and we're going to try him in Caesarea. So go with me to verse 6. We pick it up where it says, he went down, he left Jerusalem, and he went back down to Caesarea. On the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So very true to his word, Festus is going to put Paul on trial. He's taking his seat on the tribunal. Some of you have been to this area of Israel, and you've seen in Caesarea the Bema seat. The Bema seat is where the governor would sit down. It's like a throne. And when he would take his seat, he's taking upon himself the official responsibilities of Rome. So when it says he sat up on the tribunal, that's what they're talking about. Makes it an official Roman trial. And he orders Paul to be brought in. Verse 7 goes on to say that all the Jews who were accusing Paul gathered around him like a pack of wolves. And they began accusing him. So they're intimidating him physically because they're right in his face and mentally but the charges they're bringing are the exact same ones they brought two years earlier. There's no substance whatsoever to the charges. So Paul steps up, verse 8. Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense. Verse 9, Festus kind of turns on his thoughts. He says in verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? He's saying that to Paul. Let's leave Caesarea, Paul, and go up there. Why is he doing that? Well, Dr. Luke just told us. He's decided he can't figure out what's going on. He wants to do the Jews a favor. He wants to placate these individuals because he's trying to keep peace. So he finds himself facing the exact same predicament as Felix. Paul's a Roman citizen. There's no accusations against him that can stand. He's obviously innocent, but if he released him, it's going to antagonize the Jewish leaders. So he comes up with a compromise, we're told, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Hey, let's go to Jerusalem. Do you notice what he says in verse 9? You'll stand trial before me. He's trying to assure Paul, you won't go before the Supreme Court. You won't go before the Sanhedrin. You'll stand trial before me. In other words, I'll protect your Roman rights. But Paul knows these guys. He went to school with these guys. He understands how they think. This kind of a compromise will give them everything that they want. Paul will probably get killed along the way. The leaders don't care who presides over the trial. They don't intend for there to be a trial. They want to kill Paul. So Paul's response, verse 10. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal. 
where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong. Verse 11, he jumps all the way to the end. I appeal to Caesar. Goes on to say why he does do that in verse 11. Matter of fact, he says, you know very well, I'm not guilty, I'm innocent. So he's calling Festus to this level of Roman integrity. I want a Roman justice trial. I've got no recourse, verse 11, I appeal to Caesar. Every Roman citizen had the right to do that. Now, if you know anything whatsoever about the first century and Caesar Nero, you would look at that appeal and say, that looks like sheer madness. Who would want to go stand before Nero? The guy is whacked out. Well, this is very early on in Nero's reign. He's just come into power. He hasn't yet gone to the dark side, right? Okay, so he, he's still a little bit more rational towards Christians at this point. And Paul doesn't know him. He says, I want to go stand before Caesar. Now, once the appeal is granted, it takes the case out of the governor's hands, gets it off his back, in other words. He doesn't have to deal with the complications of this political firecracker he's got. So we get the response in verse 12. He answered, meaning Festus is speaking, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Now, I'm guessing, I don't know this, I can't back it up necessarily, but I'm thinking in this moment, Paul has this sense of exhilaration because we saw four chapters earlier that God said, Paul, you're going to Rome. You're going to stand in Rome and speak of me. Well, God's just fulfilled his promise. I'm thinking Paul's feeling this sense of exhilaration. God kept his word. I'm going to Rome. Now, we start in verse 13, understanding we're taking on a big chunk here, and I've left sections out, but what you'll see on the screen are just some ways to help us understand the dynamics of the situation. Verse 13, now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea. Jump with me down to 14. Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix, and he goes on to explain the case. Go with me to verse 18. He's still talking to the king. He says, when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, verse 19, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Now jump down to verse 22 and watch King Agrippa's response. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would also like to hear the man myself. Festus responds, tomorrow you shall hear him. I put a little chart together. It's not in your notes, but I'll put it up on the screen to help you understand who is this King Agrippa who's just ushered himself onto the stage. He just appears out of nowhere. Well, he's the last in the line of the Herods. And when you hear the term Herod in the Bible, it's a title, the Herodian Empire. So King Herod Agrippa II is someone who's wearing the title not only of king, but he's a Herodian. Well, his father is King Herod Agrippa I. He killed the apostle James. Scripture said he had it executed because of his, uh, his allegiance to Jesus. He's the same guy who arrested Peter and mocked the church. And we're told in Acts chapter 12, this is the king who was eaten by worms from the inside out. God condemned him. His great uncle is Herod Antipas. That's the guy who executed John the Baptist. That's the same guy who tried to kill Jesus and mocked Jesus the night before Jesus was crucified in his own courtroom. His great-granddaddy, that's Herod the Great. He's the guy who murdered all the little boys in Bethlehem who were two years of age and under while he was hunting for Jesus. See, this Herod Agrippa II, he comes from a long line of murderers and he is not to be trifled with. This is a powerful individual. 
Yet he's got a personal life that is really screwed up. He's actually involved in an incestuous relationship with his sister. Bernice that's mentioned here is his biological sister. And he treats her as though she is his queen. She goes every place that he goes. They're the subject of a lot of gossip in Rome. But Rome considers him to be an expert on all things Jewish. He's the source that they go to when they need information. Uh, Very interestingly, before we move into verse 23, I want you to notice in verse 19, you get a window into the heart of someone who can't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Festus is the governor, really intelligent guy. He makes things happen. He's looking at this story about Jesus, and he can't figure it out. Do you notice that he refers to Paul as an intelligent, educated man, but he says he claims that there's this dead man alive by the name of Jesus. It's baffling to Festus. It's precisely the resurrection that sets us apart, church, from the rest of the world. You see it right there in that verse. He knows they've got some issues over religion, but when he comes to the resurrection, he cannot figure out why Paul believes that. That's the thing that sets you and I apart. Festus cannot understand the effects of the resurrection. He doesn't understand why it's even important. Why? Because he's ignorant. And I do not mean that in an insulting way. I mean, he's uninformed. He doesn't know anything about Jesus. He doesn't know about Jesus' life, his ministry, his miracles, the the fact that he was resurrected, and this is baffling to him. See, he's uninformed in the Scriptures. So you see in verse 20, especially if you're holding your own Bible open, look at it. We see that he's perplexed because he says to the king, I'm at a loss as how to investigate this. And he needs Agrippa. Because Agrippa is the expert who can help him understand what's going on with these pieces that I'm hearing about. Go with me now to verse 23, and I just want to slow it down a little bit because what you're about to see is one of the most captivating stories in the entire Bible. We get some detail that you get no place else. Go with me into verse 23. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp, and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. One Greek word I put in your notes this morning that was in your bulletin, and you'll see it up on the screen as well, is this word phantasia. And and phantasia is literally this description of something that's a, a vain show, putting on a huge display. Well, Dr. Luke says they're not just putting on a huge display. It's a megas display. He uses the great pomp. So the king is coming into his palace, and in typical Roman fashion, they're going to use this trial as an opportunity to celebrate King Agrippa. And it's absolutely spectacular. Agrippa is decked in all the trimmings of royalty, purple robe, golden crown, rings on his fingers, scepter in his hand, and he's got the attendants with him, and Bernice is dressed the same way. And according to verse 23, he's accompanied by all the commanders. Why did Dr. Luke include that? Because he knows that in Caesarea, there's five Roman cohorts stationed there. That means there's 5,000 Roman soldiers stationed in Caesarea. Each one of them has over the top of them a chiliarch, which is a commander, a commander of a thousand. So five generals stationed in Caesarea who are accompanying the king into the chambers. And in typical Roman fashion, they bring along with them the honor guard to escort the dignitaries. We're told in verse 23, the prominent men of the city who are in their finest clothes. So when seated upon his throne, Festus commands... 
Bring in the prisoner. The contrast, church, cannot be more striking because into the grand hall of the palace walks an aged, broken man who's been in jail for two years. Paul's been locked away. Scripture doesn't give very flattering descriptions of Paul. The contrast, I say, is so great because of Paul's own appearance. Extra-biblical sources say that Paul's described as a short, bald man with a very large Jewish hooked nose. Matter of fact, the Bible goes on to say he's totally unimpressive. Look with me on the screen at this description, 2 Corinthians 10.10. For they say his letters are weighty and strong. We would agree with that about like Book of Romans, right? Okay. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance is unimpressive. So Paul's physically not imposing whatsoever. And he's standing in the palace of the king. So Festus, who's the governor, who's about to turn the trial over to the king, has to remind the king, hey, there's a reason we've all come together. Pick it up with me. Verse 24, 25, he begins to describe it. And verse 26 is where we start. I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. Verse 27, for it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. See, he's got to send Paul to Nero, right? And he doesn't want to send Nero without any charges against Paul. He's got to put something in writing. So the stage is set. Festus opens up. King Agrippa, all you who are present, all you dignitaries, behold the man. I have nothing to say about him. Help me with this. I've got to have something to write in my official report. Now, that's the Roman side of the courtroom. I'm speculating, but Paul's in the room, right? And I'm thinking, just speculation, Paul's looking around the room and thinking, wow, look at what Jesus just arranged for me. Because Paul's not a guy to hold back on talking about Jesus, right? We, we would say boldness off the charts. Look at all the kings and the dignitaries who have gathered in this room where my voice is going to echo off the marble. No speaker needed. They're going to get to hear about Jesus. I know the wheels are already turning because of where the story goes. Paul would never dream of missing an opportunity to talk about Jesus, especially in a setting like this. Verse 1, you get to see the king takes over the trial. Chapter 26. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. So you can see right away Agrippa's in charge, right? Now the king has the rule. Paul puts out his hand like a typical Greek orator. They raised the right hand at the very beginning of their speech. Some of them held their hand up through the entire speech. But Paul's been in chains. We don't know if he's still in shackles. So we don't know if he continues to do that. But what we do know is he's got a story he can share. He's got a story about the powerful truth of the conversion that he experienced on the road to Damascus. So that's where he's going. Even though you've heard it twice already in the book of Acts, this is the third and final time you get to see it again. Verse 2, in regard to all of the things which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, Paul knows Agrippa. He knows his life is a disaster. His personal private life is a mess. But what he also knows 
is that Agrippa leans towards allegiance toward Rome because Rome has given him as his authority, even though he's got a Jewish background. He does not favor the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court of the Jews. He favors the Rome, Romans. So Paul also understands this guy who has a Jewish background is an expert in all things, all customs, all questions Jewish, meaning this. He can grasp the issues. So Paul knows he has before him sitting on the throne a prime candidate to hear about Jesus, and he's going to unload with both barrels. So what you're about to see is Paul's not going into defense mode. He's using his defense as an opportunity to do an offense. And the primary goal is not to clear himself whatsoever, but to win Agrippa and all those things, all those people listening. So he doesn't hesitate to do something that I'm going to do this morning. He doesn't hesitate to say to King Agrippa, I beg you, listen to what I have to say. That's the goal of Paul's life, to help people understand who Jesus is. Watch with me. Here's another example from 2 Corinthians. Up on the screen, 2 Corinthians 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Watch verse 20. We beg you. That's Paul. I beg you, please listen to this. So I need to hit the brakes on this story for just a minute. We're coming right into the end of it. But I beg you, if the first 20 minutes of this have been of no interest to you whatsoever, if you're thinking, Mark, too much detail, too much history, where's the application? I beg you, watch what God can do in a life transformation when you see this story. It is absolutely astonishing to grab and grasp what God has done. Go with me to Paul's story. Look at verse 4. So then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. In verse 7, he begins to explain the hope, but he ends by saying this, for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. That hope, that promise that he's speaking of, that was made by God himself, is that Messiah would come and that he would forgive sins and take them away and that he would establish a kingdom. It's for proclaiming the fulfillment of that in Jesus that Paul's on trial. And so he's so upset about it, when you come to verse 8, you watch him break off midstream and look everybody in the eye in the courtroom and say this to them, verse 8, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? It's the very thing that the ancestors understood was going to happen. At the resurrection, God validated what he was doing in the promise when he rose Jesus from the dead. So we're hearing Paul say, it's absurd for me to be condemned for stating what the ancients knew. But catch this. Paul understands exactly what they're thinking because he's been there before. There was a time in his life when he looked at Jesus as absolute foolishness. You, you buy into that? You, you believe that? That's what you own? That's your hope? He actually thought he had to do things antagonistic to the name of Jesus. 
So for the third time in the book of Acts, we get Paul's conversion recounted to us. Watch this in verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and that's exactly what he did. He did. Many things. And he goes on to describe that he even voted against Christians and approving of their death. Verse 11, and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Verse 12, while so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. I love that verse because you get a description of the Shekinah glory of God. It's not just bright. It's brighter than the noonday sun in the Middle East, something you're not even supposed to glance at because it'll burn the retina out of your eye. God is brighter than that kind of brightness. So Paul says in response to it, verse 14, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, we have never seen that phrase before in the study of the book of Acts. Matter of fact, it's the only time it occurs in the Bible. What is he talking about, kicking against the goad? I think we would probably all in this auditorium agree if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a bad thing to fight against God, right, church? Okay. This is, in essence, what God is saying here. It's hard for you to kick against the goad. Well, what is a goad? With the Gentile audience in that palace understood exactly what Paul was referring to because Jesus has used a modern-day form of conversation Everybody in Palestine, everybody in the Roman Empire understood exactly what Paul was saying because that phrase, kicking against the goads, occurs over and over and over again in Greek literature. It always has the meaning of fighting against one's destiny. So what's a goad? Well, a goad was a very long prod with a super sharp end on it that a herdsman would use to move his cattle along. And when they were taking cattle to the butcher block, they would actually line an aisle with these goads pointing in the right direction. So if the cow tried to back up out of it, he would back right into the pointed rods. Well, the herdsmen used these goads to keep prodding the ox along. God is saying to Paul, you've been like an ox kicking against your master, Paul. Your destiny is this, and you're fighting against it. Why are you fighting against God? The will of God. So Paul's response, he says in verse 15, part A, and I said, who are you, Lord? So Paul's stunned, right? He's heard this brilliant voice and this incredible light, and he's knocked to his bottom end on the ground, and he's terrified, and the torturer of Christians can only stammer, who are you? Because he's been rocked to the core. God's response, verse 15, part B, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, transfer yourself to first century Caesarea, just mentally. Imagine you're standing in the palace right now. Can you appreciate the murmurs and the whispers going through the room among the dignitaries at that point? Oh, that guy is whacked out. Can you believe it? He thinks he's talking to a dead man. Paul is gone. See, that's what the unbelieving world thinks when you talk about situations like this. 
because they understood Jesus is dead, executed by the Romans, and they've been told his followers have stolen the body to fake a resurrection. How can Paul claim to have spoken with him? I mean, he's a brilliant guy. While they're reasoning through that, Paul goes on to say, this is what Jesus said to me, verse 16. This is Jesus speaking. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Jesus has just told Paul, I came for a specific purpose. Just like Jesus came into your life for a purpose this morning, church. Not just to save you. It's not just about Paul understanding who Jesus is, getting his ticket punched, and he's got eternity secure. He's destined for heaven. See, it's not only to redeem. When God says, I came for a purpose, you better pay attention. And God has just said, I came for this purpose, not only to give you light, but a greater purpose here on earth. You're looking for a greater purpose in your life? You're looking for a greater reason to get up in the morning? to function the way that you function throughout the week, something that will motivate you. God says you've got a purpose. It's not only that you've got your ticket stamped and you're on your way to eternity. It's that you get to talk about me and who I am. Because Jesus goes on in verse 18 to say, Paul, here's what you're going to get to do. Verse 18, you're going to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. You may not be aware of this, but the Bible teaches very clearly that unbelievers live in spiritual darkness. So we have a huge responsibility. The next couple of verses I'm going to give you, you might want to write down in your notes or in your own personal Bible this morning because these are things that will encourage you to help you remember who you are as opposed to who individuals are that stand opposed to God. Look with me up on the screen for this first reminder. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That's very basic. It's a biblical truth. The God of this world is Satan. Small g, you notice that. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They can't see, so step it up a notch. Go with me to Ephesians 4.18. What's it like for them? Well, they're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And ignorance is not an insulting word. It means they're not informed. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Next time you have an individual in your life who challenges you and says, you really believe that? You are like whacked out. Stop and take that moment to pray for that person. Next time you see someone on a national level taking shots at Christians, pray for those people because they can't see it any better than that. Scripture says they're operating with blinders on. It's foolishness to them. So it requires us to be bold to talk about who Jesus is, but not just us. It really requires the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to open their eyes. See, you and I are just the channel, right, that God uses. God uses the Word to open their eyes. What you hold in your hands this morning? It is the life-giving truth of the living God. That's why it's so important to own a copy of your own Bible and to read it and to understand it because God uses it to bring clarity. Meaning this, Mark Kring can't do it. You can't do it. It's the Holy Spirit working through us. It's the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God. That's why we lean into His Word and His Word alone. 
So what does his word do specifically? We're told in the book of John how God uses the Holy Spirit and his word, the Bible, to do this. It says John 16, 8, he brings conviction to the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, meaning the judgment to come, the judgment that you and I don't have to go through because we're believers in Jesus. But to the world that's perishing, there's judgment coming. Now, that kind of genuine conviction about who Jesus is, it results in something. It results in life transformation because Jesus didn't just stop with what we've just looked at. We move forward into verse 18, part B, and we see Jesus takes it a step further. Look at what happens when you believe in Jesus Christ, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. See, Jesus' own words, right? Jesus' own words says the result of salvation in Jesus is forgiveness of your sin. Can God lie, church? Oh, come on, there's more than 10 of us here. Does God lie? And God just said you get forgiveness of sins when you believe in Jesus Christ. Somebody better say amen to that. Okay, so God says, your sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. I will remember them no more. That's cool. I take that every day, right? So it's not just the forgiveness of our sins. He says that leads to something else. That leads to this internal inheritance. So, so watch how Jesus has phrased this. It's going to take me a paragraph to explain what he said in one sentence, but he's God, I'm not, right? Okay, so he said first is the forgiveness of sin which means it's the removal of the barrier. It's the removal of the barrier between you and God. And with that barrier removed, the way is clear for the second result. And Jesus says what the second result is, the assurance of eternity with God. That's why Romans 8.33 reads like it does. Look with me on the screen. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies no one can bring an accusation against you. Jesus died for you. He took away your sins. He remembers them no more. Your eternity is secure. That's why when you've got a, a family member who passes on, who is a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to mourn like the rest of the world. We don't mourn like those who have no hope. We rejoice in the fact that they got an eternity that's secure with the living God, knowing that their sins have been forgiven. That's an incredible promise. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So verse 18 didn't just stop with the forgiveness of sins, right? He went on to say, Jesus himself said, you get an inheritance among those who've been sanctified. Peter wrote about that. Here's just one example. 1 Peter 1.4, Peter said, that inheritance is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. God said, it's not fading. That means it's not fading, right, church? God said it. No one can take it from you. Now, here's the clarity of the Bible. The absolute proof of God's word. What we've just talked about, this comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way you get it. Not through works. You can't earn it. Somebody here know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? Raise your hand if you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and you're willing to quote it for us, right? Okay, that makes it a little different spin on Somebody who knows it, shout it out for us. Excellent, well done. 
It is by grace you have been saved. Amen, church? It is the gift of God, not by works lest any one of us would boast. We didn't do it. We didn't earn it. So what's Paul's point in bringing all of this before King Agrippa? And not to mention the fact he's got this captive audience that's got to listen along with him too, right? Why bring all of this to King Agrippa at this moment? Because Paul's not the guy who talked to Christians. He said, I tortured Christians. I hated them. I killed Christians. I had nothing to gain by doing what I did and what you're hearing me talk about. So I had to do something with this because it was so real, King Agrippa. Go go with me to verse 19. We're coming into the last couple of verses, and this is his response. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Verse 20, he goes on to say, I just kept telling everybody about it. I had to tell everyone. I couldn't keep it to myself. Why did I just put verse 19 up on there? Because not only that we're coming to the end of this, but that section speaks to what every believer, every true believer does in response to recognizing who Jesus is. Meaning this, obedience accompanies true salvation. Paul says, I I was obedient exactly to what I heard, what I saw, what I understood. It's the evidence that we belong to him because Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, you're keeping my commandments. You're owning this. If you belong to me, you're doing what I ask you to do. That, that's the obedience that Paul's talking about. So here's Paul's summary, verse 21. For this reason, some Jews seized me, and I stand to this day testifying both to small and great. Love that phrase. He knows there's slaves in the auditorium, right? It's not just the king and the governors. It's not just the military generals. I'm speaking to small and great, even the servants in the auditorium. Small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Everything that you've just learned about in the last 35 minutes, everything that you've read together with me, all the things leading up to this, all these events were set in motion for one reason. Because Paul was faithful to what God called him to do. If we're going to change the word out faithful, I'm going to insert the word bold. Because Paul was bold to what God called him to do. Now watch some of the natural outcome when we're bold. We see this in verse 24. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Because every intelligent person knows, every educated person knows that dead people don't get up and walk around. Right? Right? That's why it's called faith. Festus can't figure out what in the world are you talking about, Paul? Why are you speaking of this? See, Festus is listening. He's the one that's got to write the report to Nero. He's got nothing more to write now than he did before this whole thing started. He's absolutely confused. Paul is brilliant. How can he believe what he's saying is really true? Paul, you are crazy. You have lost touch with reality. See, church, there's consequences when we share Jesus. It's not always that people are going to respond. 
Matter of fact, we don't know of one single person in that auditorium that day that surrendered their life to Jesus Christ because Paul shared the gospel. All we know is they sent him on to Rome. That's where we're going to pick up next week. He goes to stand trial before Caesar. There's consequences when we share Jesus. So let's go 360 degrees all the way back around to our anchor verse where we started this morning. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, Paul's story is your story. It absolutely is. Your, your life was on a trajectory one direction. You understood who Jesus was. Jesus sets you on a new path, forgives you of all your sins, guarantees your inheritance in heaven. That's who Paul is. Paul says, Jesus changed me. Paul's story is your story. Absolutely changes us. So how do we go into those conversations with our friends and neighbors and coworkers who think this stuff is crazy? that it's foolishness. Well, we find it right there in 1 Corinthians 1.18. We're told the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What's the power of God? Because you really need the power of God to talk about this stuff. The power of God is the cross, meaning what Jesus did in your life. That's what Paul has just done. This is who Jesus is to me. I understand he's changed my life trajectory. You've got a story to tell, church. Maybe not this week. Maybe you'll share it in two weeks, maybe a month, maybe today. You don't know. But you've got a story to tell. Who is Jesus to you? You've already held up the cup and you've already held up the bread and you've stood in this auditorium and said, I own this. And we've witnessed to fellow believers. That's a hard thing to witness to those who don't believe. But God says, we've got a power source available to us. The power of God is the cross. So hear me on this. Test God in this. Just begin talking about what Jesus did on the cross and why he went to the cross. And see if God doesn't fill your mouth with words and fill your mind with understanding. That's exactly what he did for Paul. That's the kind of boldness we're talking about. Take a step. Trust God. See if he'll open a door for you. Because God said, Paul, if you trust me, I'll let you stand before kings. We saw it today. Paul gets to go stand before Caesar. Yep, it's going to cost him his life. But he owns it for the one who gave everything for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray with you that way right now. All right? Let's pray about that boldness factor together. Father, in the beginning of this, we invited you to do things in this auditorium today that we can't do on our own. For one, that we would see you in a new light and that we would encounter you, but that you would change us where you need to change us. And that you poke and prod where you need to. So God, I ask that on behalf of what we've examined here today, this, this boldness factor, you would help us to find that sense of courage in our own life even when we feel like we're not good enough to talk about it or when we feel like we don't have enough of our own act together. God, help us to rise above that lie of Satan. I pray for the men and the women and the students in this auditorium who have willingly spent time to come here today, who have willingly said, I want to own this. I 
pray, first of all, Father, your blessing upon them for doing that. But God, I also ask that you would give them courage and boldness where it's needed to speak and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ that we would never, ever miss an opportunity. God, make that true of us. I pray for this because you're worthy of it. That's why we celebrated communion this morning. We celebrate what you did for us. So God, I ask for this on behalf of every one of us that call New Hope their church, that call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. I pray for this in the name of the one who is worthy, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.